We are in the middle of this uh, sermon series, Letters to Leaders, and uh, yes, yesterday, last Sunday, uh, we talked about authority, uh, that authority is, is good, uh, it is biblical. Oh yeah, kids, you guys can go down to junior church if, you, if you'd like to. Um, I'm just so ready for, to use my clicker, I forgot all about that. Um, so last week we talked about authority. Authority is good. Authority is from God. He has put us all in different uh, parts of authority, whether we're just somebody who's under authority right now, like my kids. They don't really have any authority unless it's delegated to them, right? But um, they, they're under authority. Um, there's different levels and parts and features to authority. We talked about all that last week. And so as I talked about last week, Allegan Bible Church has elders and deacons. Both of those are biblical offices that we see in the text. So we talked about uh, this authority. So the question is, where do we go from here? What's next? What now? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Uh, this morning, I want to say that we're going to talk about eldership. Uh, this is, so men, this is the kind of man that you should want to be. Everybody this is the kind of man that you should want these men to become. So whether you're a man or you're a woman, this is something that you can pray for for Allegan Bible Church. That God, in his grace, would raise up men for these positions. So to that effect, let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we praise you in your name this morning. You are good and holy and altogether righteous. Lord, we confess that we so easily get drawn astray into the other things of this world. Our hearts are foolish, and we seek after selfish comfort instead of faithful service to you. Therefore, Lord, we come to you again today to ask for forgiveness for mercy, for grace. We ask you to be gentle with us in your correction and lead us in your way. Keep your light ever before us and guide us into your will for our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would raise up in this body of believers leaders for your church. Let us sharpen one another, lift one another. God, we ask that you would lay your holy fire upon us Restore us, renew us with right hearts. Help us to grow in maturity as we seek to apply your word this day. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first time that uh, eldership is kind of talked about in Scripture is going to be in Acts 20, verse 28, which is on the screen in front of you. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, uh, which he obtained with his own blood. So uh, the first thing I want to point out to you is uh, sometimes Scripture will use uh, different words for the same kind of thing, if that makes sense. 
Now, in America, we've lost that ability with our English language for, for whatever reason, and I've used this illustration before. You can love, right? You can love pizza. You can love your wife. You can love, you know, a car. You can love a movie. You can love all those things, and we use that term love. But you know, and I know, in the context of that, we, we should mean different kinds of love, right? Well, in the Greek, they use terms like uh, overseer, uh, uh, shepherd, uh, and so there's a couple different words for this, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute, but they're generally the two that they'll use is uh, presbyteros and episkopos. Now, they are translated in our English versions as things like supervisor, overseer, leader, shepherd. This is the first time we've used this kind of term as overseer, so that's one of them. Uh, another one that we see here is in the book of Titus. So I would encourage you to read through that. That's only a couple chapters. You, you could do that this week. Uh, this was Paul's command to Titus. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, there it is again, in every town as I directed you. So what does biblical eldership look like? Well, this is what they're called to do. They're called to lead the church by teaching God's word, shepherding the flock one by one, and serving as examples of godly character. So like I said, I, I, think, I think that this is something that everyone should aspire to. Every single man in this congregation should aspire to this. But here's the other thing. Every single Christian should aspire to these requirements as far as it applies to us. D.A. Carson, you may have heard that name, great biblical scholar, has observed that perhaps the most extraordinary thing about the biblical qualifica qualifications for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. Now, what he means by that is that all of us as Christians, almost all of us, right? Because husband of one wife, that's, that's gender-based. But in fact, almost all of them required of all Christians elsewhere in the New Testament. And then he gives this list of other passages that are encouraging regular, everyday Christians, not holding in the office, to have some of these same and practice some of these same characteristics. So if you're here this morning, sister, and you're thinking, here we go, another sermon just to men that has nothing to do to me, for, for me, you're absolutely wrong. You can pray for the men in this congregation, you can seek to, as far as it depends on you, for these things, you can seek to apply these in your own life, because sister, they're for you too. But what I want to talk about is elder requirements. You ready for that? So elder requirements, you can find this in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, Titus 1, 6 through 9. I think I'm going to read through that for you and with you, uh, and then we're going to get into kind of how I've, uh, how I've cut these out. So these are elder requirements. It says, therefore, in the back, you're going to click through as I read, right? So therefore, an overseer, elder, shepherd, right? They must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace 
into a snare of the devil. And then moving to, to Titus, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charges of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So as we pause on this slide here before we move forward, I want to I just again clarify with you, there's an awful lot there that applies to all of us regardless if we hold an office or not, isn't it? So we are called as Christians to be different. Remember, he says, be holy because God is holy. Be set apart because God is set apart. There is a standard for us as Christians, and believe it or not, it's not simply whoever else, Steve, Bob, John, Tim, it doesn't matter. The standard is Christ. The standard is, believe it or not, the standard is perfection in these things. Now, we can't do that on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. Just like those who are called to these positions, they can't do that on their own. They need the Holy Spirit. Now, I think Scripture kind of breaks this down into categories of which I'd like to share with you. So, out of these requirements, I see several categories. The first one being moral requirements. Moral requirements, above reproach. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean perfection. For if it did, I, I'd have to step down. I demonstrated some of, some of that to some of you the other day when I was well, working on things at my house and I got a little more upset than what I should have, right? Uh, or for, even from the pulpit, I'll say something that I shouldn't have said and then Elisa will be graciously corrective of that later. She said, you don't, don't say that. And so if we had to be perfect, then none of us would be qualified for this position. However above reproach, meaning that hopefully there is no large moral or ethical disgrace that either I cause or that I have caused in my past to then make others uh, unwilling or unable by conviction or otherwise to be able to follow that leadership. Does that make sense? No active charges are to be brought before if they're above reproach. Now, I'm not, I don't mean for this to be political in any kind of way. But we have a real-world example before us. And it seems like certain news media does this all the time. So however you feel about this doesn't matter to me right now. I'm just using it as a real-world example. Think about the president. There, he's, he's a leader of the country. We ought to be able to look at him with honor and respect. And he's got this thing going on with his son. Whether it is or isn't or whatever, I don't care about any of that. It's none of my business. But even in that regard, do you see how, even in the world's eyes, there's a level of above reproach that must be there as a moral requirement? Remember that these people are stewards of God's household. And so he talks about that, like, if we're going to steward God's household, we ought to have our own house in order as well. Uh, another one of this moral requirements is this respectable. It, it could be translated as, as modest, okay? Uh, virtuous and well-behaved. Not a lover of money or greedy. Now, I'm here to tell you right now, if you get into ministry for making money, 
you shouldn't. Now, on the flip side, we all are familiar with that uh, TV preacher. I don't know why they always get on TV. I don't know how they always get on TV. I can tell you not all of them are on TV, but you know what I'm talking about. And I don't need to say any kind of names. It doesn't really matter. We all have that caricature in our mind, right? And for some reason, mine always takes on that southern draw, doesn't it, when I, when I do that? Uh, for, for some reason, I, I don't know why that is. Uh, but but we, we all have in our mind that kind of... Uh, schmarmy kind of, uh, and, and forgive me if you've ever done this, kind of this used car salesman-y vibe of the preacher who's up there and, and they're, they don't seem, uh, they seem like they maybe have a problem with the love of money. Now, I know there's nothing wrong with, with being well off. And if a pastor is a pastor of a church and they pay him well, and if, if he wants to dress a certain way or look a certain way because that's what he wants to do, then there's nothing wrong with that, right? What I'm saying is there's, there's nothing wrong if I wanted to go out and buy $150 whatever Jordans. There's nothing wrong with that. I should be able to spend my money however I want, right? However, there's also a level of stewardship, there's a level of wisdom, there's, there's, there's uh, appearances of evil that we, also, well, we, we need to take into account. And so there's a lot more at stake here than just, you know, the kind of kicks somebody likes or the kind of uh, watches that they want or the kind of suits that they have to wear or any kind of these things. These are all, you have to understand, these are all external things that we see with our eyes, but there's other things that we have to be aware of. Here's another one, well thought of by outsiders. I don't think we always take this into account, but do those outside the church have the same impression of your pastor as, or your elders, rather, because it's not just pastors, that you have of your elders? And by the way, what we're talking about here is not just pastors. I think that's a good, this is a good time to clarify that. We're, we're, we're talking about anyone who holds the office of elder. There are, there are what we now refer to as lay elders and then professional elders, for lack of better terminology. It's very simple. Those who get paid to do ministry, professional eldership, and those who don't get paid to do ministry. But these are still their standards, moral requirements in these areas. Another set of requirements is, believe it or not, mental requirements. I'm sorry that I fall short here, right? Uh, but what I mean by that in the text here, and uh, using God's word, is actually sober-minded. It's this idea of being temperate able to think clearly with balanced judgment, objective and thoughtful, mentally stable. And, and I don't mean that in a joking way. What, what I mean by that is able to process logically, for example, famous example from Bible times. You may be familiar with the story. King Solomon. These two women come in. One, two women, one baby. Both women say, the baby's mine. King Solomon says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half. Each of you can have half. How does that sound? King Solomon, with his wisdom, understood that any mother from the history of Eve would say, let her have the baby, just let my baby live. And then King Solomon's like, well, I know who the mom is, right? Because you're the one who said, I would rather my baby survive and not be with me than have you take my child. And so in his wisdom, King Solomon is able to have the mental requirements to lead well. Now, believe it or not, there's also some physical requirements. 
They are husband of one wife, not a drunk, hospitable, managing their own household well. Now, husband and one wife. This is a difficult term to parse out. So I'm going to give you um, a couple different views. And what you need to do is be a Berean. If you don't know what that means, what that, what that means is I'm going to give you a couple views that I think are, are backed by Scripture that you need to decide based on prayerful consideration of Scripture in your own study where you come down and then that conviction that you form based on Scripture needs to be the way that you think about this text. So, the husband and one wife. Here's a very clear, this, this is for sure part of it. I can't have two wives. An elder can't have two wives. Like literally multiple wives, the husband and one wife. So what's that, what's that even called? Polygamy. Polygamy is out, okay? So there's, that's one place you got to be clear on. But here's the other part that this could mean. Here's the other views. You ready? Have they been divorced? Now, in Scripture, there are texts that talk about divorce because of time. I'm not going to get into all those. If you want a list of those, then come see me afterwards and we, we, can, we can deal with that. But what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Only ever been married one time? That's it? Or... Was it okay if they had a biblical divorce or, or not a biblical divorce? And, and what difference does that make with them? Or does this talk to single men? What about a single man? What about widowers? In, in all these different contexts, right? And so you need to study those scriptures on those areas and formulate for your own mind, what does this mean to be the husband of one wife? The other thing that that means is, are they faithful to their current wife? Now that also, instead of like the multiple wives, that should go without saying too, but I don't know if you men know this, but you can be unfaithful to your wife uh, without having an actual physical relationship with another woman. So the other thing, not a drunk, right? Now, this does not mean that they can't drink at all, but substance abuse, substance use. There is such thing as being a functional drunk, right? There's these other things like that. And also, they didn't have other things back then like prescription medication or marijuana. Or I mean, they probably had marijuana back then, but it, it wasn't in this kind of category, right? I'm going to assume they would have it because it grows in the world. So, I mean, you know, it was around somewhere. Um, they need to be hospitable. Are they open and inclusive? Not inclusive in the way that you know, DEI or whatever likes to place that. But are they inclusive? As people come into the congregation, are they able to welcome them in? Are they, are they able to have them over to their house? This does not say in the text, are they an extrovert? Don't read that in. Just are they hospitable? Do they manage their own homes well? Are their kids obedient to them? And I would also say, why are their kids obedient to them? Are their kids obedient out of fear or out of love and reverence and out of correct ability to lead? There are some emotional requirements. The emotional requirements are not violent or quarrelsome, self-controlled. This not violent or quarrelsome means not a bully, right? Are they uncontentious and considerate, or are they always seeking to press their own issues? Are they okay with 
not being right or not having the vote go their way. Self-controlled, meaning moderate and disciplined. Are they exercising common sense? Are they carefully uh, thoughtful choices? And then lastly, as you might expect, but also firstly, because we're, all of this it has its roots in spiritual maturity, obviously, spiritual requirements. Some that are specific are not a new convert. Why? Because they don't want them to come into the snare of the devil. And secondarily then, spiritually, are they able to teach? James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So when we talk about eldership, when we talk about leadership in, in the church specifically for the office of eldership, that is a requirement that they do not share with the deacons able to teach. So that is a requirement. Here are some responsibilities. I've got a whole list here that I'm going to rattle off real quickly, and then we're going to go to the texts. They're supposed to be able to lead the church, exercise oversight, teach the people God's word, equip and prepare the saints, labor in preaching and teaching, model Christian leadership, shepherd, judge uh, doctrinal disputes, guard the church from false teaching, care for the church, uh, help those within the church who are weak, pray for the sick and anoint them with oil, lay hands on uh, for certain gifted individuals, handle church finances, represent their local church to other churches, uh, held uh, accountability, uh, they're held accountable to God the Father, okay? First Peter 5, 1 through 3 says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, very interesting, by the way, uh, that Peter is saying this, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then Titus 1, 9 through 10, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So here are the requirements broken down. Shepherd the flock. What does this mean? Well, Peter, who wrote that, ought to know. I don't know if you guys remember this. Peter had a little fallout with Jesus. Do you remember the story? Uh, Peter denied him three times. Peter also had a reconciliation with Jesus. Do you remember that story? And here is what it is. 1 John 21, 15 through 17. When they were, had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon of John, do you love me more than these? Pointing to the fish, probably. That's what Scholar says. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love, uh, do, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Proverbs 27, 23 says, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. See, what a shepherd does is to feed and protect the sheep. What a shepherd knows is that those sheep are not his own. He is, he is an under-shepherd. So who is the good shepherd? Jesus. So this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. Jesus' church. I don't know if you caught that with my quick speech. 
This is Jesus's. This is Jesus's church. You are Jesus's sheep. I am merely a steward of that which is under my under my purview, as well as all the elders who have ever been a part of Elgin Bible Church or ever will be. Is their role to feed and encourage, to protect and correct? Here's the other part that I guess you know. People don't like, I don't know if you know this about sheep, they're, they're not super smart. Remember, I'm a sheep too, so just keep that, because I'm not the shepherd, I'm just a steward of, of his sheep, so I'm a sheep too. Sheep are not all that smart. They often will wander into danger. They will often wander away from the flock. They need to be corrected. Shoot, sometimes they need to be sheared, don't they? And I am sure that at the time that the, that the farmer is wrestling them to the ground and taking those scary things to them, and I'm sure that they do not like being sheared until they get it off. And then they're happy because they understand that it was for their good. So feeding, encouragement, protection, Matthew 18, 12, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains, go in search of the one that went astray? So shepherd also exercises oversight. He says you have to exercise his oversight, not for shameful gain, but gladly and eagerly and as an example. And then lastly, what I talked about is able to teach. So this idea of oversight is this idea of managing, Okay. Remember the managers of the 10 talents, the five talents, the two talents or whatever, you were a good manager or not a good manager? Well, also able to teach. I already read it to you. Not many of you should become teachers, James says. You know, they're going to be judged more strictly. What does able to teach mean? It simply means being able to give instruction, rebuke if necessary, and defend the faith. Those are the three things of what Scripture talks about of what that means is able to teach. So does that mean that everyone who's an elder needs to be able to write a three-part sermon that lasts for over 30 minutes and preach? No, that's not what every elder needs to do. But every elder must be able to understand the doctrines of Christian faith and be able to articulate against an opponent if heresy is being taught and know enough about doctrine of Christian faith to be able to spot a heresy or a false doctrine when it is being propagated and be able to take someone through the understanding of where that is to be found in God's word. Because by the way, you're not here to hear my word. You're here to hear God's word. The elder who's defending the faith isn't there to defend their faith. They're here to defend the faith, God's word. So they have to be able to teach as well. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Which means part of this instruction isn't taking our favorite verses, cherry picking them out of the text, just to prove some kind of a point. It is unfortunate when preachers do that. Hold me accountable to that too. Hold your elder, elders accountable to that as well. Lastly, I know this has been very academic. 
But you need to know because in October we're electing new elders and new deacons. That's why this matters. This also matters because guess where the elders and the deacons come from? I don't have an elder and deacon farm that I go to. I don't know if you know that. I guess I do have an elder and deacon farm that I go to. Do you know where it is? It's in this room. I also don't know if you... I'm, you should not... This, I'm going on a rabbit trail for just a minute. Okay? Here's the deal. There should never be a church that only has one elder. That's my own. I, I know that there's churches that formulate their, their, their body of leadership in all kinds of different ways, and they'll give them all kinds of fancy names and kind of different things. And, there's, there's all, and what the Bible says is there's overseers, elders, and there's deacons, and that's it. That's how we're going to do it here, because that's what the Bible says. We're going to make it very simple. You also need to understand it's wrong for there to just be one elder. Why? Because there needs to be, there, there need, there needs to be uh, accountability. Thank you. There needs to be accountability. I hope that you can trust me, but you also shouldn't trust me so much as to just let me run away with the ship. That, I mean, does this make sense? Uh, nobody should have all of that. There needs to be accountability. And so the reason we're talking about this, the reason why this is academic right now, is because in October, you all are going to have to appoint or as a church, we're going to appoint, we're going to talk more about the, how the Constitution should function in elders and deacons and all that kind of leadership and all that kind of stuff too. But as it stands right now, men, you're my pool. So either that is a really great thing and you all who are out here right now are thinking to yourselves, that is a great pool, or you're thinking, we might be in trouble. And, and I'm not here to say one way or the other. All I'm here to tell you is this. If you feel like that is great, then praise the Lord. Continue to pray for and lift up these men. And if you think we're in trouble, then you better be praying for and lifting up these men. Because this is what we got for elders and for deacons. And just so everyone's clear, I want, I want every single man who comes through Algon Bible Church to at some point in their life be nominated by the congregation to say, you know who I think would make a good elder? Insert your name there, guys. I want every single one of you to be in that. Whether you get elected to that position or not, I don't really, I don't care. I want that for you. Same with deacons. So let's talk about your reward. Because I want you to want this. You should want this. Women, you should want these men to want this. And you should pray for them to want this. But I think sometimes we think about these positions and we only think about the negative. We only think about, yeah, I'm going to have to go to extra meetings. Yep, I'm going to have to deal with Pastor John and his stupid stuff that he's always bringing up or, or whatever. And so it's stressful. I'm going to have to deal with all these, all these people and all their problems and I don't have time. I've got my own problems and all, all these other things. Listen, yep. I'm not, I'm not telling you that's not true. Talk to your previous elders. I'm a hard person to deal with. I understand that. They love me enough to stick around. And they love you enough to stick around. And they love you enough to continue to come to those meetings. But there's even more than that. They're not, I want for you all to know that this is not a thank, neither one of these are thankless positions. This is why you should want this right here. Uh, for all the other reasons I said too. Just as a Christian, we ought to want this. Here's some reasons you should want this too. Here's the rewards. One, this is a noble task. 
1 Timothy 3.1 says, the saying is, oh yeah, the saying is trustworthy. What does that mean? Back then it means the same thing I meant today. You can take this to the bank. Who wrote this? Paul. Paul's writing, he's saying, hey, here's something I know is true and I want you to know it's true too. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There's a lot of things, men, that we might desire in our lives. There's an awful lot. Nothing is more desirable as a Christian than to be able to be in these roles, specifically an overseer. Do you understand that the bride of Christ is at stake? Um, let me give you a, uh, just an example. There's not a whole, there's, there's, there's almost nothing that I wouldn't do for my wife. If, if she was ever out somewhere and was in danger and, and one of you men were there and saw the danger that she was in and acted, I would, I would never forget that. What's that called when like, uh, I would just be indebted to you forever. And if you're married, I'm sure you feel the same way. Let me, let me paint you a different picture. If she was out there and she was in danger and you knew and you stood by and you did nothing, I would also probably not forget that anytime soon either. This is a noble task. Yes, it's a big task. Yes, it might be a hard task. But you should aspire to this. This is a task that every single one of us should be praying that every single man in this room wants. Uh, secondly, not only is it just a noble task, it, it is deserving of double honor. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, let the elders who rel, well, huh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So this is the text that we go to as a proof text for why you should pay a pastor. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about today. Although that's not wrong. What this is talking about, or what I want to talk about with this, is that those who aren't getting paid, but are volunteering, you should be giving them double honor. Because they're not getting any financial gain that comes along with it. For example, what I mean by that is I have, unfortunately or not, I have a literal vested interest. I have a financial interest. Like it or not, it's the way it is. I have a vested financial interest in doing these things and in serving well. Because just like any other quote-unquote job, if I don't function well, y'all can fire me, right? I mean, just be honest. But the elders and the deacons who serve voluntarily, you ought to give them double honor because they're doing it for free. And if that's not worth your respect, 
If that's not worth praying for, if that's not worth, I don't know, taking them out to a steak dinner every once in a while or something, some kind of way to say thank you, you know, watching their kids so they can go on a date if they have kids. Uh, I mean, if that's not worth our honor and our respect that they are taking on, do you understand what we just read? Not many of us should even become this because we're going to be judged more strictly. What they're saying then is, I understand all the responsibilities. I understand all the dangers. I understand all the trouble. I understand that the man who's out there, who's pointing a gun at the bride, might pull the trigger, and I might have to take a bullet today, and I'm going to say, I am willing to do it because I love you. That requires double honor. And then lastly, if that's not enough for you, there is a heavenly reward. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, which we read at first, and I want to read that first before we get to this. But he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So Peter, again, is saying this. Shepherd, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but as examples to the flock. He says, and when the chief shepherd comes, appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Again, go back to that illustration I had. If I love my wife as much as I just said, how much more does Christ love his bride? Christ gave everything for her already. And not only that, he gave everything for her. And then in the gentlest of ways, he says, now here, will you please manage her until I can come for her again? And if you manage well, can you imagine the joy upon our Savior's face? that men he will give to you and tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. You preserved my bride. You helped make her ready for this day, the day where I get to receive her back to myself. I've been so waiting and longing for this day, and you are the one who has helped prepare her for that. I was up here making her rooms and getting all that ready and laying all the foundation and, and doing all that kind of stuff, and I was just waiting to receive her and I left her in good hands with you because you worked well for me and for her. That is an unfading crown of glory. There is no greater earthly calling, I believe, than eldership. And I say that only because there's other things that we're also required to do to be to be adequate for that position. Strive for this. Pray for this. Long for this. Men, it is what God has designed you for. He took man and he put him in the garden after God had created the garden for his own pleasure. And he took man and he put him in the garden and he said, now you you steward it. You keep it. You cultivate it. You work it. You increase it. 
And he's doing the same thing with his church. It's in our DNA. So I want to end with this. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you that you in your divine sovereignty have created the church in the way that you have created it, that you have made these offices of deacon and elder. God, we pray that you would raise up for yourself protectors and defenders of the faith. We pray that you would raise up for yourself men who would fill these roles because they are good and noble and desirable. God, we pray for the health of this congregation and other churches like it, that there would be a a resurgence and a renewal of the vigor of the desire to hold these roles. God, it is my personal prayer for Allegan Bible Church that there would be so many men who would desire these positions that we would not have enough positions for them. I pray that, Lord, because you have called us to these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.